My name is Anika Chabra, and you're listening to Root and Seed, a podcast about tradition seekers who are sparked to explore, define, and celebrate their family and cultural identity. We set out to make six episodes of our first season of the Root and Seed podcast. That makes this our season finale. The past 18 months has been a heavy one, not only because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but for those of us who identify with almost every single culture that is prevalent in North America and globally. From the murder of George Floyd, which sparked a long overdue movement for Black Lives Matter, to farmer protests in India, to the rise of anti-Asian hate, conflicts between Israel and Palestine that brought about a rise in anti-Semitism, the discovery of thousands and counting Indigenous children buried in residential schools to the most recent atrocity in Afghanistan that will sure to have effects on immigration and the stories of their descendants for years to come. All of these events have made us take a pause. Regardless of your background, the effects are wide-reaching and pronounced. With those events as backdrop, a cultural reclamation and reappropriation has emerged, opening up the floodgates for those seeking to do just that, like many of our podcast guests this season. And while each of their stories have been unique in their own way, one of the most fun and exciting things about your response to our platform and podcast has been the relatability of the stories. We heard feedback like, I'm just like Vicky, I too found my people. Or, while I've never thought about it that way, the way Aldo distinguished his different selves made me really think about the different parts of my identity. And some of you are inspired to document your family elders, just like Kathy, before the stories slip away. With all that in mind, when thinking about writing an introduction for Alex, our season finale guest, we wanted to ensure that we didn't over-rotate or over-narrate. You see, Alex's story is super relatable and in some ways not overly unique. What is impressive and commendable is his understanding of the effects that his story has had on his outlook, behavior, and values as a professional, a husband, a father, and simply as a human being. Take a listen. I am a first-generation Canadian in that my parents, I think that's the right um, terminology for it, or my parents um, immigrated here right before I was born. And so I'm technically born in Canada, I have Canadian citizenship. I am first and foremost uh, a Canadian, uh, if you put it in those sort of technical terms. And I, I guess if I were to describe what my relationship with my culture has been or uh, was for quite a long time, uh, I, I'd say it wasn't particularly a positive one. In, in fact, I'd say on my worst days, there's probably a lot of self-loathing. There's probably a lot of shame for who I was and where I'm from and who my parents were. And, you know, it's a lot of that is a circumstance of being a Korean family living in rural Ontario that owned and operated the convenience store, right? And the, there was this really sort of deeply rooted racist upbringing that I experienced for quite a bit of my formative life. You know, and it doesn't help to be one of three Asian families in sort of like a 50 kilometer to 100 kilometer radius. My brother and I were the first Asian students at our grade school, literally ever in its existence. At the end of the day, it should go without saying that we lived a pretty, we lived a life that was kind of colored by almost every shade of racism that you could think of from like the really blatant stuff. 
um, from being like profiled by police officers or local police officers to more like subversive microaggressions, which at the time we didn't necessarily understand nor had the right words to articulate what they were. But we lived through that. It was a very much a lived experience for quite a bit of our quite a bit of my youth. I won't go necessarily into sort of like what those racist acts were and what I went through on the day to day because that the acts themselves aren't necessarily important for this conversation at least. But I will say that those circumstances kind of fundamentally shaped or reshaped my values, wants and desires as a person and as a visible minority. Um, I grew up wanting to become and desperately wishing to be white. And I wholly rejected my Korean identity. Everything about being Korean, I hated, and I didn't want anything to do with it. And you could call that whitewashing, um, but in hindsight, I'd probably call it something more sinister, and I call it assimilation. I adopted white mannerisms, and I mean, I still to this day, and I, I, Nika, I know you know this. Like, I use a lot of very white idioms and phrases, like "hang a Larry" to like tell turn left. Like, what what Korean guy says that ever? <laughs> I very much adopted being a white person as sort of my my identity. Like I exclusively wanted to eat white food. I didn't want to eat any of my mother's cooking. I even wanted to date white girls. And I mean, at the time, not that I had much of a choice, like that was literally the only option. Even when I went to university, my parents would have that conversation, Alex, you know, like, I hope you grow up wanting to marry a Korean girl or an Asian girl. I was like, no, man, I'm going to, I'm going to marry a white chick because, you know, this is the new world that you brought me into. Therefore, like, I'm going to adapt and be that guy. But the problem was, I wasn't, it would never be white, despite my best efforts. And I think the worst part of all of this is that this pursuit kind of led to this really toxic feedback loop that reverberated out to the rest of my family. The racism that was piled on top of me, resulting in me wanting to assimilate to becoming a white person and doing all these things to be white and sort of erasing my cultural identity, affected how my parents viewed themselves. They, they affected their confidence and affected their belief in who they were. It affected my brother's belief in who he was. And in retrospect, I, I could see my parents giving up their Korean identity too, because I kept echoing to them, you brought me to this rural area, you brought me to this new sort of white world, therefore we need to be more white. And they, if I think back, I can see them sort of giving up a lot of these points of identity, like being a Korean, like the food, like we stopped eating Korean food for quite a long time. We almost moved exclusively to the English language for quite a while. And we speak Konglish now, Korean English combined. And I forced them to do all these things. It wasn't something that I, I, I'm necessarily proud of now when I look back at it. I think shows you this really sort of negative relationship that I had um, with my culture growing up. And it, it this kind of persisted for the better part of like 10 years. Like shades of this was my experience for a while. It isn't is until maybe like the final years of university where things maybe started to get a little better. I went to Queens, aka the whitest school in the country. I think you can see quite as um, obvious pattern. And after graduating and moving to Toronto, it wasn't really until I met my wife that like a true cultural identity renaissance took place. Here I am, uh, a Korean guy who has rejected everything about himself, um, wanting to sort of assimilate to being white. And then here's my wife who grew up in Toronto, surrounded by friends who are who look like her, who 
come from the same place as her, who, who are Chinese, who speak the same language, who have the same sort of lived experience. She too also experienced shades of racism throughout her life, as all visible minorities do, but not to the extent that I did. And when I injected my own life into the way she was living, I, I, I felt a comfort in wanting to sort of reestablish and reclaim elements of my Korean identity, elements of my Korean background, and make it more of who I am and kind of do the re uh, reverse judo move where I'm now rejecting whiteness. A lot of that reversal is still quite new to me, right? I'd say the, the, past, the past four or five years uh, are probably where sort of my reclamation or this renaissance uh, has been happening. And it, it, it get, it's, it's been sort of a steep climb. Before it was maybe pockets of activity here and there, but now it's more of a hockey stick, right? And it's, it's sort of skyrocketed with everything that's happening in the world with media finally spending more money and time covering visible minority, not just in news, but in entertainment and everywhere. With the representation, I feel much more comfortable and it's helped me shed quite a, quite a toxic piece of baggage that I've been carrying for quite some time. I feel like talking about this stuff is always so cathartic because it's so hard to talk about reclaiming cultural identity, especially with people who may not understand your lived experience. I think just being able to share that publicly, maybe someone will be able to connect with it. Maybe someone will be able to relate with it through, you know, certainly not the same details, but through sort of like the same broad strokes. I think sort of a really key point for me in sort of this whole hearing other people say it or seeing seeing other people living the same thing is like when Kim's Convenience was a play, that to me was sort of a huge inflection point for me because I saw my life on the stage, right? Like I literally saw everything from my childhood, from the dynamic between my family, the dynamic between people outside my family, owning a convenience store and all these, uh, this confluence of events and factors and um, things unfolding in front of me. And I was like, that is my life. Someone has lived this before. I feel seen. I don't feel alone anymore. And I think that ultimately gave me so much more confidence to say, I can do this. I can, I can feel comfortable with who I am. I can feel uh, comfortable with this experience of learning for the first time who I should have always been and who I was meant to be. When it's all those things that I felt ashamed of before, I no longer have to because it's not an isolated thing. I'm so glad that that's not something that I'm going through by myself because loneliness is ultimately the thing I feel hurts so many people in their sort of ability to hold on to their identity. When you feel like you're doing it by yourself, it feels like you have the weight of the world on you and that's not a nice feeling. Wow, Alex has always been a straight shooter, but his level of awareness, honesty, and reflection surprised even me. And I love what he said about seeing evidence in the world of his story and how it invited him to experience a safety in exploring his culture as part of his identity. He then shared a realization that was so simple yet so impactful and puts a spotlight on how important a name is to one's identity beyond just being a label. My Instagram handle for a very long time used to be Troy underscore Alexander. When you when you actually spell it out, it's Troy, T-R-O-Y, and Alexander spelt like a Russian. And the reason why I did that is because growing up, a lot of people could not pronounce my name, and they messed up my name quite a bit. 
And like when you actually look at Choi, C-H-O-I, like you actually think about it, it's like, how the hell do you screw that up? Like there are there are maybe two or three permutations of that that I could like forgive. But at the end of the day, like there have been enough Koreans out in the world, you know, like if you watch golf, there's Anthony Kim and like, um, sure his name's easier, but like, would you put Choi in there? Like, um, I think KJ Choi, I think that's one of the, another golf um, player. My name is out there. It's not that hard to figure out, but before then, you know, before I figured this out and I, you know, I started to get a little angry about this. Like people were just saying, oh, Troy, oh, I can't say that the way you're describing it. Like I'm, I'm going to butcher. So I'm just going to call you Troy, right? Like hell, like Helen of Troy. Right. And so I just, I had kind of leaned into this again, because I was trying to be white, because I was trying to assimilate to the people around me. I just leaned into it. And the same thing with, I mean, like, since I'm leaning into a white version of my name, let's turn my full name into uh, another white version. So let's use the Russian spelling of Alexander for shits and giggles. So I, you know, that was my handle. And that was sort of a thing that I lived with for quite a while. Even this notion of Troy, people's grandparents were calling me this like 15 years ago, right? And so this is not not necessarily a new thing, but I think very recently, and uh, you know, it's funny, I'm ashamed uh, about this story, but I'm going to share it anyways. You know, our colleague, uh, an old colleague of ours, Hangyeol, Hangyeol, but her name's actually pronounced Hangyeol. I, you know, she's a Korean and she has a very, she has a Korean name and she, you know, she owns this, right? She's, she's probably lived with sort of a more sinister version of people butchering her name where people, you know, just anglicize it. And she's anglicized her name as well. And she's kind of lived with even other Koreans like me, you know, butchering her name. And I, I did it out of pure laziness. And like, I'm ashamed to say, like, I would, I would say, hell, Hank Hill, or I wouldn't use the correct pronunciation of her name. And I, and I thought that was so shameful. And very recently, you know, when the whole anti-Asian racist point in time where there was all this uh, violence happening against um, Asians, there was a kind of a, a sub movement of people reclaiming the uh, correct pronunciation of their Asian name. Or even just their their Asian uh, their Asian name in general, uh, and sort of ditching their Anglicized name or their English name, and going for their um, their their true name. And she posts a story about how she was reclaiming her name and how she wanted that uh, she was explaining how her name's uh, pronounced and why it's important to her. And I think that struck a chord with me. Where I was like, I want to do the same too because a you know. I had changed the pronunciation of my name and what that was because uh, like ultimately I was trying to make it more convenient for people around me. And I was, to be quite blunt, I was making it convenient for white people. I didn't care about making, I didn't care or I still don't care anymore about making anything convenient for anyone outside of myself and my family and the people that I care about. That was, that was sort of a moment in time where I, was, uh, I, I said to myself very clearly, it's like, I am, I'm no longer this person this you know like troy i'm no longer this alexander i mean I, i've kept the spelling of alexander in this russian form because i think it's funny um and I, I like ks over x but i digress but this whole point of like changing troy to troy was that is you know one of those sort of big steps i i think in changing how i thought about my name right which is something that a lot of people grapple with names are such an important part of who you are even now, like when I, when I meet with someone and I don't know how to pronounce their name, I make sure I spend the time. Even if it takes out five minutes of a 30-minute meeting, I will f- make sure I get it right. What Alex shares next speaks to the depth of his introspection and his level of understanding and appreciation for his culture and its role in his life. 
thing that um, to me has helped me remember this pursuit that I'm going through and sort of be a constant reminder of, you know, this evolution that I'm going through is I got a tattoo about a year and a half ago, maybe a little longer than that, on my arm. It's of a smoking tiger, and it's done in a traditional Korean folk art style called minhwa. I, I'm butchering this pronunciation because my Korean is awful. So if there's any Korean listening, please don't kill me. But what this tattoo ultimately kind of symbolizes to me are two things. One, the minhwa art style is specifically like a folk art style that was sort of epitomized by all these sort of like images and artistic depictions done by unknown artists of very little professional training. It's very sort of like you just kind of figuring it out as you go and you're just doing it. It's like the, the people's art and the image itself, the, the tiger smoking is representative of an age old saying, kind of like how people say, you know, once upon a time, the Korean version of that is when tigers used to smoke. Right. Um, and I think when you combine those two things, it's sort of like a, I don't really have any formal training or formal background in how the fuck I'm going to figure out how to be a Korean, but I'm going to figure it out, you know, and I'm going to go as far back as humanly possible to figure out who I am as a Korean, what that means to me, um, and sort of what elements of that Korean life I want to continue to bring into the future. So it's a representation of my journey that, you know, like I will literally have for the rest of my life, unless, you know, someone slices that piece of skin off or I get, you know, <laughs> laser removal, I think, uh, is a constant reminder to keep reclaiming who I am. Alex's story about his Instagram handle and the meaningful tattoo are pure, irrefutable evidence that Alex is at the height of his journey. And what an awesome journey he is on just in time to make an impact on how he and his wife are raising their daughter. I asked Alex one last question. What advice would you give to others who are seeking to connect with their culture? And he painted a picture of the attitude that one could take when starting to do so. I'm not going to say that everyone had the same lived experience as me, but if there was something that you grew up feeling ashamed of or grew up feeling that you don't enjoy this part of who you are, where you're from because of how others used to react to it, a very prime example of that would be, you know, your kimchi fridge. Um, I'm sure a lot of people who have a kimchi fridge and have friends come over would be like, what is that ungodly smell? to catalog all of those things and to, you know, I, I'd used this terminology before, but do a reverse judo move on it now in your adult life. Take everything that you were ashamed of, take everything that you, you know, hid from and own it, you know, and make it the thing where um, you're going to carry it with pride, carry it unabashedly, kind of force it on to other people that might have otherwise shamed you for it. So, if it, like in the alternate universe, if people were like, what is that smell? You know, um, your Korean fridge is gross with all the, the, the kimchi. I was like, well, A, get the hell out of my house and B, it's delicious, right? And so like, if you don't like it, go to your house where you smell no food because you eat boring ass crap, um, you know? And just kind of like, it's, it's literally just like an overcorrect. And I think that to me, to me, I mean, that's a bit of an aggressive uh, approach, but that that is a very sort of like Alex approach to life uh, for those of you who don't know. But like, it's those sorts of things. So next time I'll probably serve kimchi if I have a dinner party and I'll find those moments of like self-inflicted shame and ultimately sort of like completely change the narrative that's been sort of baked into my head. And I think that's that's ultimately one of the best ways to embrace it in my mind. Alex's journey can be nicely summarized as... 
from hang a Larry to a reverse judo move. <laughs> and in more direct terms, from racism and rejection to acceptance, celebration, and overcorrection. We are excited to continue following Alex from this newer, richer vantage point. Super proud of our friend and a million thank yous to Alex. Well, that's it, folks. Season one is in the books. Pure gratitude to you for listening, for your feedback, and for sharing your stories as a result of our guests this season lending us their voices, their stories, their hearts as a way to inspire others. Planning for season two is well underway, and we would love to hear from you. If you'd like us to cover a topic, you have an idea for an episode, or simply want to share your story, please don't hesitate to reach out. And if you haven't heard yet, we are in the midst of launching something super special for our community to start collecting, documenting, and sharing their stories of heritage, culture, family, and tradition in the Root and Seed conversation tool. Go to rootandseed.com to learn more and to join our waitlist today. Bye for now. Root and Seed is hosted by me, Anika Chabra, executive produced by Jen Serpong Mandel, and edited by Camille Blais.